0: Welcome to The Female Leads. I'm Eva Hartling, founder and host of this podcast. Canadian author Margaret Atwood famously said, powerful men are known as born leaders and powerful women as an anomaly. I created The Female Leads to help change that perception, which is why on this show, I speak to inspiring women about their journey to unlocking their own potential. If you like today's episode, please subscribe to our podcast on a platform of your choice and give us a good rating. Follow us on Instagram at The Female Leads and visit thefemaleleads.com. This week, we're celebrating International Women's Day. Apple Podcasts has put together a great collection of women-led shows. Make sure to check them out at applepodcasts.com slash women I'm super happy to report that the female leads has been included on the list and we are up there in great company. My guest on the show this week is Michelle Mayer, Executive Director and Chief Operating Officer of the Toronto International Film Festival known as TIFF, from where she's just about to retire in a few months after having been a top leader in the organization for 30 years. Michelle is a veteran in the Canadian and global film industry. She's been instrumental in the success of TIFF, which has grown to become one of the most important festivals on the global film circuit. She's been a champion of women in film, leading numerous initiatives to turn a spotlight on women filmmakers, as well as making a commitment for representation of women in TIFF's programming to reach 50-50 by 2020. We spoke about Michelle's journey in the Canadian film industry, her thoughts on what changes have been brought on by and for women over the years, including the impact of the Me Too movement and what it means to be a good leader. You learn as
1: much from the bad bosses as you do from the good bosses. That's true, absolutely. Find something that you love doing and, you know choose happy like choose to be happy if you're going to be miserable in an environment but make a lot
0: of money you're not going to feel fulfilled it's not worth it it's totally not worth it you are truly a trailblazer in canadian film history we can say that i don't know how it feels to be a it trailblazer. feels very odd to hear that but it's you know it's <laughs> lovely of you to say that i appreciate it it's it's absolutely true and you played um and a absolutely instrumental role in the success of TIFF over the years and you're now uh, working on your transition uh, retiring from TIFF after 30 years mm-hmm. uh, working with the festival mm-hmm. so congratulations on Thank that you. and everything you've accomplished um, but I'd like to start at the beginning so <laughs> younger Michelle yes. uh, way before TIFF tell yeah. me a little bit about growing up and what were your your dreams and aspirations back then you
1: know I think I'm not alone. As, as a young girl, I thought I was going to be a veterinarian. Okay. Way back when, when you asked little girls what they were going to be, yeah. it was never doctor, lawyer, CEO. It was you know nurse, veterinarian. I loved animals. But as I grew up, I became really attached to the idea of journalism. Mm. And I started studying journalism at Carleton University in Ottawa, and had this incredible professor in my second year who, it was a French course that I was doing, and she showed us a film and had us write a critique of the film. Mm. En Francais. And then she met with me afterwards, and she literally said to me, you're in the wrong course. You need to walk across the quad and go to the film studies department. <laughs> and she was a journalist with CBC. She was giving me work at CBC. Mm. She was helping to employ me as I put myself through school. But she said, you have an affinity for this that I think you should pursue. Mm. So I switched gears and switched programs and started studying film theory, criticism, not knowing what I was going to do with okay. it. So... It was a time when I had four jobs to put myself through university mm. and, you know, retail. I also ran a cinema with a number of other film study students. Um, oh, that sounds like fun. It was so much fun. And it was a cinema that had been a pornography cinema. And then it had been a community <laughs> cinema, one screen on one of the main streets in, in Ottawa. And then it was taken over... Um, by the gentleman who owned another repertory theater and they started showing foreign films so Mm. it was so in line with everything that we were studying Mm -hmm. at film school and I remember that people would come in and they would ask for information about the film and because we were who we were we would give them very intelligent dissertations on what they were about to see and we loved it because we could see films as many times as we wanted and it was a great kind of second university for us seeing all those films all the time but there was nobody in town who was interested in doing press screenings for the other studios and distributors Hmm. because nobody liked getting up early in the morning (laughs) so the chain cinemas and there was a few in those days didn't really want to do that work so I volunteered so I would open up our cinema on a Wednesday or Thursday morning Hmm. and buy muffins and make coffee and invite the media in and I'd got to know all of the reviewers in town and I loved it I love them Mm. and I love talking about film with them and um, I would often do a screening for them and then I'd go to work I was in retail at Holt Renfrew at that time oh yeah
0: back when Ottawa still back when Ottawa
1: had Holtz and um, I remember having to take phone calls from distributors while I was at the perfume and cosmetic <laughs> counter thing excuse me could you hold one moment and i'd be talking to astral media or wow you know columbia pictures mm. or whatever because i was the only one doing screenings yeah. for them so you really you so created your
0: own opportunity that a lot. little
1: bit and i don't think i got paid i got paid my mm. hours at the cinema but uh i just loved that exchange and the relationships that were built and some of those women i had been in touch with until today they were still working in those jobs mm. you know Forty-five years later for some of them but I just loved it so I thought okay film PR Mm -hmm. that's kind of interesting Mm -hmm. and then the cinema was purchased by purchased it was rented or four-walled by the gentleman who started Cineplex
0: and is it still a movie theater today
1: it's still a movie theater it's not no I take it back I don't think it is I think it might be a drugstore okay but, um, but it stayed a, a movie stayed theater, a movie theater and Cineplex, when it was just a small chain of cinemas, was running it. And so every night I was on the phone to the head of the company, giving him the numbers for the day, mm. which necessitated separating or, or subtracting one ticket number from another ticket number because we were using strip tickets. Right. We didn't even have a cash register. <laughs> it was a drawer. This sounds like the ancient days, but it was it was the late '70s. It's not all that long ago. Yeah. But um, so I got to know him, and I got to know the woman who ran PR, and they offered me a job back in Toronto. They mm. and I was from Toronto. My parents were still here, so I started working for distribution and exhibition for mm. Cineplex, and that was the beginning. Um, still had a deep love for foreign film, even though that's not what we were distributing. Well, right. we did some distribution of foreign film, but I mean, I was distributing. Chuck Norris films and Charles Bronson films and wow. you know Nightmare on Elm Street all of that <laughs> franchise so it was really a soup to nuts kind of mm-hmm. learning curve how yeah, to how to market exactly how to market genre mm-hmm. how to market specialty films we mm-hmm. had the Coen Brothers movies we had you know everything from working title we had yeah so it was a great again another
0: university experience outside mm. of university. Wow. So that was the beginning of mm. a career in film. And then you went on to work in in film PR in Toronto. Yep,
1: and I did that for a number of years and then I went to the government, I went to Telefilm Canada, which mm-hmm. is the funding body for film and television. Then it was film and television. And I did that for a really short period of time but did a pivotal analysis of Government invest in, investment in certain types of film and, and TV programs and showed how return on investment was working and loved that research mm-hmm. and loved that. And then when my boss was leaving, the person who had recruited me to go, I jumped when a headhunter called and it went to video. And I call that the dark days of my career because video is polyester salespeople of the industry it was just it was it was the shallow end of the gene pool it was the bottom of the barrel it was not my favorite but you know when you talk about perspectives Mm -hmm. it was there and I was you know late 20s I met a woman I was head of marketing investor relations communications she was head of customer service Mm -hmm. She's my best friend to this day. Oh wow. She stood up for me at my wedding. I stood up for her at her wedding. Okay. We had kids together. We have country yeah. homes together. Yeah. Um, so that dark period of my career actually gave me one of the brightest spots in so my life.
0: In a personal side, it was yeah. quite rewarding.
1: And you learn a lot from the bad situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm still in touch with some of the people that we worked with back then. But when um when we um they fluffed the company to sell it, and they got rid of the entire Canadian management team. And years before in Ottawa, I had worked right after school at the Canadian Film Institute, this is a chapter I forgot, with Piers Handling. And Pierce oh. came to Toronto to be the number two at the festival years mm-hmm. before. Um, and when we were in Ottawa together, we mounted an insurrection against the executive director and failed, and the board accepted the resignations that we hadn't offered so I was out on the street with rent to pay um so I called Piers when I when I left this video company or I was I was paid out to leave this video company right and I said you know I'm footloose. I can't take any money and I figure you owe me work. Mm-hmm. And uh I volunteered that year at the press office at the film festival.
0: Okay, so that's how. So I got rid first... of all of my corporate suits,
1: yeah. all of my, you know, TSX yeah. and OSE wear <laughs> and heels, etc. and um embraced the culture and had just the best summer. It was so mm-hmm. much fun. And uh From that year, that was 89. From that year, they just kept offering me contract after contract. Okay. okay. And I was doing other things on the side. I was writing. I was writing annual reports. I was working um, freelance for the Ontario Media Development Corporation at the time. Now Hmm. Ontario Create. So cobbling together a life Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and really having fun, working with people I liked. And and then down the road... um, when the managing director at TIFF left to retire for the second time. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Piers, I think, interviewed three people. And I'll never forget what she said to me. She said, you know, it's yours to lose. If mm. you want the job, mm-hmm. it's yours to lose. Mm-hmm. And I thought, OK, I've never really approached something that way. Mm-hmm. But can I muster that level of confidence to go in there knowing that it's mine mm-hmm. unless I don't want it? Yeah. And, or unless uh, you screw up badly or if i really think so <laughs> and i remember piers was 20 minutes late for our dinner meeting as he was next door shopping at sign of the skier for some skis or something it was hilarious but we were good friends so i forgave him um and then he showed up and it was i think it was the day of my 40th birthday i just had my son mm-hmm. i was still at home i took about a four-month mat leave because i was on contract there was no okay mat leave policy yeah. in those days yeah And he showed up at my door with a little split of champagne and he said, you're the new managing director. So I came back from my mat leave Mm. as the number two. And the job just grew. Mm -hmm. I mean, as the staff grew, we grew more professional and more, people would say more corporate, but there was a certain need to be able to put some things in place that would help, you know, yeah. give some solidity to yeah. policies procedures mm-hmm. how we staffed you know we had to start an HR department
0: and at that point how how long had to have been in, in existence for
1: so that was <clears throat> so when I was promoted to managing 22 years ago okay I started February 13th 22 years ago okay 21 22 somewhere in there so it's now 43 mm-hmm. turning 44 so half Half its life. Okay, gone. so it was already the, it was the established. Was already well established. Obviously. And you know, when I came on board in '89, it was small, and it was about 4.9 million operating budget. Mm-hmm. I think I was employee number seven. Okay. And uh, when I took over as managing director, it wasn't much bigger. It was mm-hmm. maybe six or seven million. The year before we moved into the new building, we were at 11 million, mm-hmm. and then now we're 43 and a half million.
0: And at that time, were there, because we know three men found a TIFF, basically. Mm-hmm. And I, I read in an interview uh, that you gave recently, and which I thought was really interesting, but you said it was never a boys club, even even if that was the fact.
1: No. And, you know, they were hilarious. The founders, Bill Marshall, Hank Vendorcoach, and Dusty Cole, they had gone to Cannes one year. A couple of them were producers. They'd gone to Cannes one year and they saw the magic that is the Cannes Film Festival and thought, hey, wouldn't this be great if we could do this in Toronto, mm-hmm. you know, without The mediterranean without the riviera without the beach without the toplessness um so it was an interesting concept (laughs) exactly they you know knew no bounds and they were bold thinkers bold Mm -hmm. visionary thinkers Mm -hmm. and they came back and they did it they pulled it off but they were
0: not managers okay they were thinkers. They were not doers. Okay, they had the vision, but the vision. implementing it was a different story. Yes.
1: So the first executive director they hired was Wayne Clarkson, who yeah. was fantastic, mm-hmm. but you know, also you know, visionary, surrounded himself with smart people, mm-hmm. like Helga Stephenson, mm-hmm. who was a marketing and communications genius, and Anne McKenzie, who became the first managing director, and you know, surrounded themselves with smart women, mm-hmm. and then other women. Suzanne Weiss who started the you know really the first philanthropy and sponsorship area for the organization, mm-hmm. Linda Beeth who started the first trade forum or industry center. So a lot of the really smart operating moves were made by women mm. and that's what formed the base that we could build upon to build what is today TIF TIFF brand, the building etc.
0: Right.
1: Piers and Helga and Wayne were Programming geniuses as well. Mm-hmm. And that's the reputation of the organization starts with the programming and the excellence surrounding how, how films are chosen and right, how right. filmmakers are celebrated. Um, but the operations of the organization, I mean, the management group today is more than 70% women. Mm-hmm. The senior team out of seven, five are women. Fantastic. So this is a legacy that I am extremely proud. What reason? Our board is 45% diverse in mm-hmm. all ways. Mm-hmm. And we're one of the only arts boards that can claim that level of diversity. And it's, you know, we've had two women chairs back to back. So I think we've actually done an extraordinary job of setting, setting the table and setting the tone. Mm-hmm. And part of what I was always proud of in the organization was that mentorship of, young people not just mm-hmm. women but young people new to a career right out of school maybe their first or second job and it's to this day it's a very young staff mm-hmm. and we're proud that they leave us and go on to big and better things mm. you know i mean five of our leadership team in the last 7 years have gone on to be ceos or executive directors elsewhere
0: fantastic
1: that to me is badge of honor mm. it's not that you're losing it's not that you're losing good people, though you are. You're actually seeing them spread their wings mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and take what they've learned and apply it and, and run other organizations, which is what our sector, arts and culture, needs in Canada. Yeah. I mean, we need more homegrown leaders. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: And and when they started TIFF, they grow with, within the organization, which is fantastic. Yeah. And was that a conscious decision to have kind of that mentorship approach and um, you know have young staff that comes in, you know, you're training them, um, was that something that was planned or did it just happen kind of by chance? I
1: think it's an unconscious competence that um, probably came a little bit out of necessity, a little bit out of design. Mm-hmm. I mean, by nature of who we are, we didn't pay the highest salaries in the marketplace. Right. We tried to be competitive to a degree, to a certain bar, and then we can't compete. We can't compete with the distributors. We can't compete with the studios, mm-hmm. all of whom are you know, contracting now and shrinking their staff so there's so many of their people who are on the street looking for work. But what we could do is provide professional development. And it's certainly been something that I've loved doing my entire career is you know, getting to know people and understanding what they're looking for and where they'd like to grow. And I'm hoping that will continue at the organization. So I'd like to think that we provide professional opportunities to develop and grow where other organizations might not have that capacity Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. it isn't a priority. And it's a way to round out,
0: you know, the compensation package and the recognition package for staff. Mm When you joined TIFF, so maybe that, that first time around when you, when you called peers, um, it was a completely different climate, you know, within your organization, but mm-hmm. outside in society in general. And mm-hmm. um, if, you, if you, what was the climate like for women wanting to work in the, in the arts uh, business or, you know, the, not, not necessarily film yeah. specifically, but what, if you hadn't gone to TIFF, what would have been your other career? That's a, that's a
1: really good question. Uh, I looked at going into the music industry but Mm -hmm. it's not I don't have the same passion for music than I do for film Mm -hmm. Uh, I looked at other you know performing arts organizations I looked at private sector yeah Um, I could have stayed in government Mm -hmm. I made a decision that the culture wasn't for me Um, and it's funny that the woman who's now the head of the CBC Catherine Tate she and I were at Telefilm together okay and she was in Montreal and I was I was in Toronto we used to talk to each other every week and commiserate Mm. about how the government operated um and i love her she's an amazing choice for cbc Mm. but you know i think we probably didn't feel as limited as we were Mm -hmm. but the women that we reported to were the first women who really broke the ceiling yeah and there was a fear i saw in some of them to allow us to move up because they had hard scrabbled their way to their positions Mm. and i believe that there was a Lack of confidence that we weren't gonna blast past them. right? And that could be that I just worked with particularly difficult people, Mm. which I did. Mm -hmm. And I've always, you know, when I lecture to students now, I tell them, you learn as much from the bad bosses as you do from the good bosses. That's true, absolutely. How not to be a leader. Yeah. And that was probably, I, I remember when I left one company and my boss said, you know, sometimes you have to leave to come back as a VP. And I thought, well, that's a really interesting way at looking at leadership <laughs> development, not the way I subscribe to yeah. leadership development. I believe that you give people the opportunity mm-hmm. to grow and you invest in them. Yeah. If they show top talent capability, you double down on that mm-hmm. and, and you help them grow within the structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was told by the first person who ever hired me after university, he was amazing, always hire people smarter than you. Mm-hmm. And you cannot go wrong Mm -hmm. because they make you look good. Yep. They do great work. Mm -hmm. And you learn something every day. Exactly. And that's, and I've never been afraid of hiring people smarter than me. Mm. And I think that's what I learned from women who I saw ahead of me Mm -hmm. who kept me back Mm. or prevented me from feeling that I was living my fully complete career within their shadow.
0: One that could be why uh, becoming a mentor and giving a chance to the younger generation becomes so so important to you. That's
1: maybe that's the 180. That's mm. you know, and mm. I've never wanted anybody to think of me the way that I thought of that particular boss, mm. Mm. and that's a very motivating factor in creating a <laughs> culture of inclusivity. And oh, um, well, not to say that I'm sure that there are people who have worked for me who would have a few choice words to say about how well, I operate, sometimes but it's a, it's a personality but, um, thing. No, I just, I feel very strongly about helping people reach their fulfilled Mm. lives through their careers and through at least what we're doing. I truly believe in the vision and mission of the organization that I've served Mm -hmm. for the last 30 years and... You know, I want to instill that same passion in others.
0: Mm. So speaking of the younger generation, and you know, you're still obviously you're you're stepping out uh, uh, from TEF, but you're still involved with TEF at the moment mm. for for a couple more months. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think the younger generation? Uh, what, what would be the, the top learnings that they should apply? what do you and I hate putting a, you know a generation mm-hmm. in, a, in a box yeah. we often talk about the millennials I don't think every millennial is the same mm-hmm. but what are some uh, some lessons that you wish the younger generation would uh, would be inspired from? Well you know we all grew up being told that we
1: had to pay our dues mm-hmm. and it's really hard to tell the next generation or two generations down that that's that's how we got ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, what I told people is that when I was growing my career, I never said no. Somebody asked me to do something, I did it. When I left one job, I was replaced with three people. Mm. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> and, yes, it does. But that's how you excelled, and that's not gonna that's not gonna work for everybody anymore. I mean, I think I grew up in a time when there was a lot of opportunity because mm. things were so many things were new and developing, etc. Disruption in today's you know society and industry is is making it a very different place for kids to grow and figure out what their career path is. Right. But now the advice that I give them is choose happy, like choose to be happy. If you're going to be miserable in an environment but make a lot of money, you're not going to feel fulfilled. It's not worth it. It's totally not worth it. So find something that makes you happy and and helps you feel you're where you need to be and fulfilled in what you're doing Mm. and contributing or you know find a cause or you know like build a rounded life Mm. and I think that's something that we didn't know we should be thinking of because we were just happy to have a job right and now I think it's a much more aware society in Mm. terms of the next generation I think they're much more aware of causes and giving back and world issues and they're much more plugged in world than we were I mean mm-hmm. technology alone technology means, means they us, know yeah. way more than we did my 15 year old daughter knows way more than I did at that age mm-hmm. and but it's to navigate that with integrity mm-hmm. and to, I would say determination mm-hmm. and know who you are and what will make you happy
0: mm-hmm. and in turn um, what are some of the lessons or um, are there ideas that you are getting inspired by uh, that you're that you're seeing with the younger generation? They are curious,
1: which is so refreshing. Mm-hmm. Everything is interesting, and their questions are endless. I do a lot of informational interviews. I never say no to a coffee or a mm-hmm. meeting with somebody, and I find that so refreshing because they are just their knowledge is so expanded beyond what it was in my day Mm. and how they're putting that to use through their curiosity through whatever their extracurriculars are through their involvement at their universities or through groups that they have attached themselves to in their first few years of career I just find that they are far busier maybe than we were we were We were one tunnel busy where we would just work until 11 and 12 and 1 in the morning and 2 in the morning doing the thing that we were doing. But these kids are so much more, their portfolio is more diverse. Mm -hmm. Their interests are broader Mm. and you know it's just fascinating to me the capacity that they have for learning, for giving, for being part of, Mm. that
0: that inspires me every day. Mm. That's really interesting. Um, well, one of my questions, which you you've answered partly, was your approach to leadership and mentorship. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your your philosophy? We've talked about how Tiff is really mm-hmm. uh, has kind of taken a role to you know nurture, uh, train, grow the, the next mm-hmm. generation. But your personal philosophy on on leadership.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's you know get to know people. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes me really panicky when I get in the elevator and I don't know somebody's name it's like, mm. get to know the people you work with yeah and get to understand what their dreams are mm. and how they like to learn and what they feel they're good at and what they feel they want to expand their capabilities around and really just understand who it is you're working with because that's the only way you're going to figure out what their potential is mm. so it's really expanding that one-on-one connection mm. I don't think you can be a leader today without walking the floor and getting to know people and mm. understanding what they do for a living
0: mm.
1: I don't mean you have to be in the weeds but it really helps to understand who's trimming the weeds yeah. and taking how care are doing of things it. and how they're doing yeah. it and you know and really encouraging them to do it not necessarily your way, but in the way that is the most effective for the organization and having them learn. Cowpath mentality is not to be tolerated anymore. It's, you know, when I discovered, I took back the communications team a couple of years ago after seven years, and I discovered they were still using the same template for press releases I had designed in, I don't know, 97 or something. I'm like, (laughs) guys, this is not sacrosanct like I don't know if this is a tribute but get rid of it they kept it Um, in your
0: honor (laughs) sure
1: but I just said no like what would you rather do Mm -hmm. what do you mean well what would you do if Mm -hmm. this was your shop what would you do and that you know that was the assistant and she said oh Michelle I have so many ideas I said go do it Mm -hmm. and she's just blossomed we promoted her twice she's amazing and it's like that makes my heart sing Mm -hmm. it's like what can you do better than I ever did Mm -hmm. show me and that for me is really important is just unshackle people so that they can actually be who they are meant to be Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. all in service of the organization and the mission and vision of the organization but show me something new and different Mm -hmm. show me you do it better than you know we ever thought could be that's Mm -hmm. so inspiring
0: Mm -hmm. that's how companies grow that's how individuals grow powerful Mm -hmm. yep is it, as a leader, is it more important to be loved or to be respected? Oh, I'm a, I'm a really emotional leader. I love being loved,
1: but I think you need to be respected before anything else. Mm. I think people need to respect the mission and vision. And everybody, for me, needs to be watching the same movie. Yeah. And if they see you leading to get everybody aligned,
0: then I think the rest follows. I love the expression, everybody needs to be watching the same movie. (laughs) (laughs) Very appropriate in Mm -hmm. your case. Um, And you've been lucky enough to be a TIFF for over 30 years. I'd like Mm -hmm. to know about some of your favorite women filmmakers that would have shown at TIFF Mm -hmm. over the years.
1: You know, I remember one particular encounter, and she's a filmmaker, but in this particular film this year, she was was an actor. And I got a phone call at 8 in the morning from the woman who worked for me who was the publicist. And she was with this person. And she said, you know, are you available for breakfast at 8 30? And I said, I'm absolutely available for breakfast at 8 30. And it was to meet Sophia Loren and her suite at the hotel. Wow. And, you know, an iconic mm. actor, filmmaker, producer, mm-hmm. um, a generation ahead of me, but somebody who I had grown up watching and and really admiring Mm -hmm. and you know she did her own hair she did her own makeup she served me tea (laughs) it was like not what I expected but so refreshing and so lovely Mm. and that to me was that somebody who's real and authentic, authentic but so famous What I said, beyond
0: famous. And her image is so divasque, we, you know, we don't expect her to be so down to earth.
1: So those are, like, those type of women in the industry are the ones that have always inspired me. Mm. Um, And in terms of filmmakers, you know, Agnes Varda, Mm -hmm. who we just did a big program to, and she's... You know, she's unstoppable. She's a force of nature. She is a complete force of nature mm. with a look that is just, you know, her <laughs> own singular yeah. um, personality. And she's, yeah, she's an icon. And she's doing really fun things, collaborating she with is, younger artists yes. today. And with she, JR and the exactly. photography and yeah. um, Places Faces. And that's probably one of my favorite films mm. of the last number of years. So she's high on my list. Um, young filmmakers, Molly McGlynn, young Canadian filmmaker who used to work for TIFF and then was an assistant oh, okay. to Deepa Meta, another yeah. favourite filmmaker and friend. Um, Alanisa Bomsawin, mm-hmm. our iconic Indigenous filmmaker mm-hmm. who represents every decade of filmmaking in Canada mm-hmm. through the number of years that she's been behind the camera. And she is an inspiration to so many generations of filmmakers, men and women alike, Um, so I see, you know, I see the long-time filmmakers and the impact they're having on the younger filmmakers Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and some of them who have come through our shop, you Mm -hmm. know, we're a little bit like, you know, the fast food of our industry where we see so many people grow up through us and then move Mm -hmm. on and move out and become filmmakers and become celebrated and, Mm. yeah. It's
0: an infinite list. I mean, I could go on forever. But. Mm, well, that's that's a good start. Um, and speaking about women in film, we often talk about the underrepresentation of mm-hmm. of women in the film industry, and mm-hmm. um, both in terms of you know the financing they they are able to obtain and so on. Yeah. How you know do you feel <laughs> that we have moved in the right direction, and what would be the next steps in bridging that gap? Yeah, um, it's a really good question, and you know we started a campaign. Uh,
1: a couple of years ago now for share her journey before everything really blew up around me too Mm. and for us it was recognizing that our industry programs were already 50-50 okay but that we knew that women were having a harder time getting funding and getting opportunities and growing within the industry so we turned a spotlight on that to raise money to be able to help women in programming um for Behind the Camera, mm. and that has been extraordinarily successful. We, it was a three-year campaign, I think. I'm not sure if we're going to extend it or not, but it's been incredibly successful and got lots of traction last year when we did the big rally. At the same time, Cameron signed the commitment, as many other festival directors have now done, for representation of women in the programming mm. 50-50 by 2020 and that's in that's all areas of craft so that's producing right. directing writing and i think we hit 35 or 36 percent last year mm-hmm. and there are some festivals around the world that are at 50%, that are 50 percent which is fantastic okay. so the needle is definitely it's moving. definitely moving and you know i did i did a panel in can a couple of years ago with agnieszka holland and um anna cerner from um one of the first real pioneers of of this movement of fifty fifty by mm-hmm. 2020 and we talked about, you know, quotas. We talked about how to actually move the industry in a way that, that is equitable and to give women an opportunity and, you know, a leg up or a hand up. Or, And it's going to come down to people making the decision to just do the right thing mm. and to open up their minds. And, mm-hmm. you know, Canada is kind of the backyard to the United States, which, which is the biggest English language producer of films. Right. So things in Hollywood have to shift mm-hmm. and they have to shift seismically mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for the ripple effect, I think, to be felt here. Mm-hmm. But our governments are starting to take a stand and, you know, Anna's, Anna's fund said, unless you show me that you're going to be equitable in how you're putting this particular film shoot together, we're not going to fund you. Right. So she actually created kind of a green card, red card mm. process where mm-hmm. you're not gonna get your green card, which is a green light to go ahead, until you show me that you've actually mm-hmm. hired people mm-hmm. according to this equitable policy. So leaders taking a stand like that mm-hmm. are gonna obviously shift the needle. Right. But it's it's you know, it's looking around and and widening your Rolodex and understanding mm-hmm. that there are Triggers and mechanisms, you know, Patricia Arquette standing up and saying, I'm not going to sign on a film unless there's a writer that says that we're going to hit this target Um, and other women saying I'm going to do a film with a male director followed by a film with a female Mm -hmm. director Mm -hmm. and I'm only going to do one and one and one so that their own policy, their self policy Mm -hmm. is 50 50. Mm -hmm. So when people in leadership roles, the gatekeepers take that stance Mm -hmm and actually make those commitments, that's when you'll see the ripple effect start Mm -hmm. to really move the needle. Mm -hmm. But I think there's already been great strides. I'm very proud of where we've gotten to. I know we're going to probably exceed where we need to be. uh, And that makes me very proud. And it's not done through quota. It's done through mindfulness. Yes, no,
0: exactly. That makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. And I like how you say, you know, Hollywood has to take a leadership role here. Um, We are, unfortunately, in in the backyard, as you you well said uh, um, working in the film industry, obviously the Me Too movement hit mm-hmm. close to home. Mm-hmm. What are your general observations, feelings about Me Too? Was it necessary?
1: There is nobody at my age, I'm 61, there's nobody, no female my age who's worked in this industry for as long as I have who doesn't have stories. Mm. And we grew up in a time when it was just, you know, suck it up, buttercup. And, you know, you move on. Yeah, And, no one ever saw me cry it happened once at work and it was in a spare office with a closed door and I vowed that nobody would ever see it happen Mm. and you you got resilient and you know you built a carapace to be able to deal with Mm. what came at you because it was constant right absolutely constant so I'm I'm shocked at how it all came together and the bravery of the people who came forward right I'm impressed with how society has responded Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I remain cautiously optimistic that it will have a lasting effect Mm. on how my daughter's world will unfold and how society will welcome this next generation of women Mm -hmm. in all industries. I mean the film industry was the first one but you can't tell me there isn't an industry that's affected. Banking, legal, insurance, industrial, Mm you name it and the industry technology. has to, technology mm-hmm. technology i mean the bullying that goes on yeah. in technology mm-hmm. you know everywhere it's 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 about respect it's mm-hmm. about it's the cardinal rule you know treating others as you would like to be treated yeah. and and knowing that no one should have the kind of power that was being wielded
0: mm-hmm. against these people and not
1: just women but against these yeah. people
0: yeah what kind of conversations did you have with your teenage daughter around Me Too? You know,
1: we have... It's so funny because they're so plugged in. They read everything. Yeah, it's not, yeah. Nothing is... So did you hear about so-and-so? Oh, yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Like, <laughs> you, hear, you know. They know everything before I do. That's it. It's right. amazing. Interestingly enough, the more um, revealing conversations have been with my 21-year-old son. Mm. My daughter is growing up very strong, very leaderly. Mm-hmm. And she has an amazing capacity for building a circle of friends who are sweet, smart, funny, rock-solid, confident men and women, boys and girls. Good for her. My son is 21 and at university and I think there's been a bit of a movement where he is where some of the women have become quite militant mm. and he's reeling. He's afraid of forming relationships and friendships and he's always minding himself and I feel that he's on tenterhooks you know mm. walking on eggshells so having confident having having conversations with him about building confidence and being authentic and being you know I always told him when he was going to high school be the funny guy be the lovely guy be the friend be the shoulder to cry on please do not be the jerk
0: mm.
1: please do not be the one that you know loves them and dumps them and good advice. he's you know I think you know touch wood I think he's turned into a really lovely young man with mm. a big heart and he's mindful of how things have been happening in society and universities are hotbed for this mm. mm-hmm. you know conflict and conversation to be going on today so mm.
0: yeah it's an interesting time to be a parent <laughs> well it sounds like you're you're doing a great job and um, so you dedicated a big chunk of your life to one mm-hmm. organization, um, and we all know how involved a senior executive needs to be. Uh, it's not it's not a nine to five job, more like a twenty four seven around the clock. Um, what kind of balance, if any, did you did did you find in your life, and do you think work life balance actually exists? It's a really good question, Eva.
1: I, I What I tell people today is I don't actually believe in work-life balance. I believe in work-life harmony. Mm-hmm. And for me, excuse me, when my children were little, I would leave the office to have to pick them up by six at daycare. And I'd have six to nine for them and dinner and bath and whatever with my husband. And then at nine o'clock, I'd turn my BlackBerry in those days with BlackBerry, I'd turn mm-hmm. my BlackBerry back on or turn my computer back on. Um, because I felt that We were building a business that was not nine to five for sure. We're running a building. We're running programming every day of the year now. So if people needed help or advice or a go-to, I wanted to be available to them. I wanted them to make good decisions, but I also wanted them to know that I had their back. So I would plug back in. Mm. But... And there were years when we were building the building where I did not have a life. And in the middle of building the building, we went to China and adopted our daughter. And so there was a lot going on, but we were still able to do it. And I was still able to come back and take time even while we were building the building to be at home with mm-hmm. her for a few months. So I don't think I ever felt deprived. It was also all I ever knew.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, that feeling of, well, I guess this is how you do it because yeah. this is all I know how to do. Yeah, you make so it work. you just do it and you make mm-hmm. it work. And, you know, and we developed a phenomenal parental leave policy at TIF, and the government has given people a phenomenal runway to be able to begin their family and be Mm. home with their family. And Mm -hmm. that puts a lot of pressure on an organization, especially a charity. It's a very expensive way to operate. But we're committed to making it work for people. Mm. And I think that's something that's evolving now that wasn't really there for me as we were building is flexible work hours work from home you know how you actually structure the organization to be able to allow people to have a better harmony between their work and their Mm. life life and that's something that I hope increases and evolves even further Mm. because you don't want to lose good people you particularly don't want to lose good women Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in strong roles because they feel compelled to step out of workflow Mm. while they build a family it was important to me to make as much available as possible Mm. somebody famously said to me you can't work at TIFF and have a family and my response was just watch me (laughs) so I've wanted that and I didn't have all of the opportunities that we've created for the people who have come behind me but Mm. that was really important to me and again, you know, balance, I'm not sure balance exists. Mm-hmm. I mean, I haven't been to the gym in 15 years. You know what I mean? I have the most expensive gym membership. I finally canceled it because I think the last time I went, it was probably worth about $3,500. But um, but it's about having the time to do what's important to you. And for me, that was family. Every mm. weekend was family. I mm-hmm. might have been out every night during the week, but weekends were for the kids and mm-hmm. for family. And I don't think my kids felt that I wasn't there enough for them. Mm-hmm. Although I might have felt that sometimes. Mm. But making that flexibility available to
0: people, I think, is going to be extremely important mm-hmm. going forward. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. Um, are there any routines that you know you you need to apply on a daily, weekly basis? Maybe not the gym, but to keep your sanity, to feel like you have balance in your life. Mm-hmm. Could be just you know stepping out, reading a book. Could be meditation. Yeah, I brought my book with me for mm-hmm. when I'm on the subway later. Yeah. Um, I I
1: tried meditating mm-hmm. it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't stick for me um but I have been you know and actually I, I try and do this at the beginning of every year I get back into a routine of um I change the way that I eat and the way that I exercise and more walking and more fresh air and less wine and mm. more healthy food mm-hmm. and I feel that you know with the transition coming and not being in the office every day it's so much easier Mm, it's mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. much easier yeah and that i'm really looking forward to i mean last year for my 60th i walked the camino de santiago from portugal to spain with a girlfriend Mm -hmm. and that was i wouldn't say it wasn't life-changing but it was Mm life-affirming where, okay, I can do 230 kilometers in nine days and not collapse, although yeah, I felt you. it. But <laughs> that gave me a lot of time to think mm. and a lot of time to really figure out what I wanted to do. Mm. And that's when you know I was also finishing this course and now I'm halfway through certification for this other coaching course. And a lot of that came to me when I had the time to open up and be mm. in my head for a bit. Be and the moment. I think that's... The piece of the routine that i was missing all mm. those years because mm. it was always what do i need to do next yeah who do i have to take care of you know i was taking care of an elderly aunt and had the kids and my husband and the dog and now it's like okay now i actually get to slot myself in there mm. and i think that's the piece of the routine that's starting to come together mm. so whether it's extended you know walks with the girlfriends or a coffee morning with my the the moms from my daughter's grade school that mm-hmm. were still in touch and you know i'm really still close to a couple of high school friends and we're planning a trip and things like that just mm. making time for those relationships and those friendships and and for me and my own well-being and my own caregiving mm. as opposed to caregiving for everybody else around me <laughs> so the routines aren't quite there ask me in six months but i have <laughs> we'll a, a I have a vision of what it
0: will be and mm. uh it's good mm. so what's next for you michelle Meyer, after tiff So I have loved
1: the role that I've played internally as a mentor and a coach. And, you know, these certifications, one that I have and one that I'm working on, have shown me that I am really good at helping people discover their own life purpose. Mm. And it's become such a fulfilling path for me to learn that and to start working with people to help them better understand what fulfillment looks like. So I'm coaching people at an executive level, many women, but also men, in transition. Either transitioning into new roles, transitioning out of roles, trying to figure out who they wanna be when they grow up. Mm-hmm. And it's so incredibly inspiring and rewarding. And uh, not gonna work full time, but I've um, mm-hmm. already kind of started a practice in executive coaching, and mm-hmm. I'll see where that goes. Well, that's very exciting.
0: Yeah. Um, we have a couple of signature questions that, we, yep. that I ask all my guests on the female leads. Mm-hmm. And the first one is, if you could go back in time, is there one thing you would change or do differently?
1: You know, I've thought of this, you know, what if I did do my journalism degree? What if I did become a veterinarian? This, you know, this expression, I have no regrets. My path took me to where I am today. And I have a beautiful husband and a fabulous family and great friends. So I don't think there is anything I would do differently. I think mm-hmm. I learned a lot along the way. Mm-hmm. And money was never a motivator, mm-hmm. which is a good thing when you work for a charity. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm very proud of the
0: mark that I've made in our industry and I have no regrets. Mm. And if we fast forward 10 years from now, looking back, mm-hmm. what will be the one thing you'll be the most proud of?
1: I think my legacy at TIFF is probably very high on the list. Mm. And it's not necessarily about the building, although it is beautiful and iconic and I love it, it's about the people that I have actually helped along the way. Mm. And that if people, you know, 10 years from now look back and say, she was my favorite boss, I learned more than anything, Mm. she was a hard ass, but I really exceeded, and I did well, and I was successful, then that for me is a life well
0: lived. Mm. What's a book, or in your case, Mm -hmm. a movie that influenced or changed your life? So I'll give you you a book from when I was really little and I don't know if it changed my life but it's
1: probably where my love for reading really kicked in and it's a book called The Secret Garden Mm. by Frances Hodgson Burnett. It's about a little girl and a little boy who take care of this garden that has gone to ruin because it's been neglected and this concept of things that are neglected wither and die and things that are nurtured grow and become more and more beautiful over time. And that's almost a life lesson that has carried with me mm. my whole life even though my Christmas cactus continues to wither in the corner of my dining room <laughs> I need to do some remedial cactus work when I get home but um, a film one it's the film that I reviewed in that, in that French course in, in second year university it's Réjeanne Padovani which is a municipal thriller it's a policier political mm. thriller by Denis Arcand and it was about 70s mm-hmm. politics in Montreal. Yeah, And I remember the first time we did a retrospective of Denis' work, and I met him because I had to do all of his PR for him. And I said, it's your fault that I'm in this industry. Wow. And he and his partner, producer, wife, Denise Robert, mm-hmm. are very good friends. Okay. And that film made me take that right turn at Carlton to go across the quad. <laughs> to the film studies department so I always remind him that we were having martinis in Montreal in September and I said do you remember do you remember why I'm in this business he said no remind me I said you never remember I
0: tell you this every time it's for Jean Panamani oh now I remember, now I remember. <laughs> so it is a movie that literally changed your life it literally changed my career path in mm. my life yeah hmm um what's a quote or a saying that you repeat to yourself or others over and over I tell people
1: choose happy you can choose happiness in your life and I think that's something that I try to live by every day choose mm. happy and the other thing that I advise people is always hire people smarter than yourself
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. two very good sayings I think so <laughs> well those were the questions thank you very much Michelle it was you. an this absolute was, pleasure to have you this was just a delight it was really lovely chatting with you If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to The Female Leads on a platform of your choice and give us a good rating. I'm asking because it really does make a difference. I'll be back next week with a new guest on the show. Thank you so much for listening.